Welcome to the next mile. Today's episode Blast from the Past. When we think of transportation, cars are probably one of the first things we think of. It's a mode of transportation we see, if not use, on a daily basis. And we see so many, right? Big cars, small cars, electric cars, stick shift. There are cars on TV and in movies and magazines. You're listening to a podcast right now about cars. These days, the existence of cars is hard to escape. This comes as no surprise. They've been a part of our society for over a century. And they're not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm Puya Diana, and this is the Next Mile Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to take a journey through time to see how we arrived at today's modern automobile. Depending on who you are, You may know a thing or two about cars. For some, it can be pretty basic. Maybe you know how to drive, how to change a tire, or even how to jumpstart your car in case of an emergency. But for other people, their automobile knowledge can run pretty deep. From models and manufacturers to function and design, some people know a lot when it comes to cars. And then there are people like Jeff Lane. Jeff not only knows a lot of things about a lot of cars, but he has some great insight into the many ways they've been concepted, designed, and produced throughout history. He's the director of the Lane Motor Museum in Nashville, Tennessee. You run probably my favorite little museum. You are the director of the Lane Motor Museum. Can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do? Sure, the Lane Motor Museum's a uh, predominantly a car museum. We have about 500 cars in the collection. We're predominantly European, although our real uh, theme is interesting cars that you typically don't see other places. So like propeller-powered cars, micro cars, the Lark, which is a super, super big cargo carrier, are some of the typical things we have. Tatra from Czechoslovakia. So we've, we've kind of focused on areas of transportation that sometimes were not successful to propeller-powered cars, although it was a good idea, it was not successful. But then also we have the microcars, which really evolved into the mini and other small cars, which evolved into bigger, mainstream, typical transportation. What stops at micro-machines for most kids turned into a lifelong infatuation for this second-generation car connoisseur. Well, I've been a car enthusiast ever since I was a kid. People say, were you always born into this? I said, yeah, my dad was a big car enthusiast. And growing up as a kid, we had MGs in the garage that we were working on. We would go to MG meets all the time. So it was kind of cars, cars, cars. And uh, just started from young age and just blossomed from there. Talk about innovation. Three windshield wipers on a car. That was MG's big... uh... (laughs) thing, right? Right, yeah. And since it was British, they probably didn't work half the time, especially (laughs) when it rained. (laughs) It's pretty incredible that you're sort of second-generation car enthusiast. What got your dad into this? 
You know, I just my dad was always, you know, he was in the MGs. He bought a new MG when he was in the Army, TF, and he, that he always used for a few years and then got rid of it, and then we got back into that. And also his business was, or our business was in the automotive industry and making sealants. And we grew, I, I grew up in Romeo right outside of Detroit, Michigan, which in that time period, the big three was, you know, that was the Motor City. I mean, not anymore, but that was the core of the U.S. car industry with that at that time was the dominant, you know, worldwide car industry. How did growing up there sort of change your perspective on cars in general? I mean, it must have shaped it greatly. It probably did because every, almost all of my friends, parents probably worked for the car industry or maybe someone that serviced the car industry in some way, right? Because back in the 60s and 70s, not that there was nothing else in Detroit or the Detroit area, but that was surely a dominant thing. Yeah. So Two degrees of Ford. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then you know, people didn't. You know, there were. It was very. There was like one four car, one foreign car dealer in, in in Troy, Michigan, and that's it. And they sold kind of Jaguars and high end stuff. Typically, you didn't. Not that you never saw a Volkswagen, but not not very often. Where if you grew up on the East Coast, you know, you got all these kind of oddball European smattering of cars, but you did not get that in in uh, the Detroit area. A few years and a couple hundred miles away. Things couldn't be more different at the Lane Motor Museum, which houses hundreds of cars from all over the world. So you said you had 500 cars and that the focus of your collection is just on exotic cars mainly, correct? More more unique and interesting that people haven't typically seen. I wouldn't say exotic because when I think of exotic, I think of Ferrari, Lamborghini, high-end type cars. So ours are, are more People say oddball, but and that's it's a good description of oddball. A lot of these cars are very oddball. Definitely. I, I think uh, when we walked through, it caught my eye how people were looking at the future back then. And that was really interesting to me that cars has been this platform where people have tried to push and go in different directions for such a long time. When I was reading about Porsche's new concept car, the Mission E, that Ferdinand Porsche's first car was actually an electric car. Electric hybrid, yeah. Yeah, and they yeah. found it in some barn, right? Yeah, so now he's so now they've circled back a hundred really more than a hundred years later, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it so. won't be a few years until we maybe see some of the models you have out on the roadways again. Yeah, we've had some comments about that, you know, be, because you, each car was kind of developed for the situation that it was in, like the microcars, which the U.S. is not very familiar with. But, it, you know, after Europe, after World War II, Europe was decimated, and most people were either walking or maybe riding a bicycle or possibly a scooter. And so the microcar was just a step up to get people out of the rain and the cold and move them a short distance, you know. But Americans look at them and think, this is crazy. I mean, we can't, you know, we have like a Peel Trident in our lobby and people walk in and say, that's a toy, right? You know, and it's like, no, that was really transportation. But, it, I, I mean, you got to understand the context that it was made to be used in. You know, nobody ever intended to drive a Peel Trident from Atlanta, Georgia to Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. So. I think people forget how much our circumstances change how we try to travel. And even a lot of the premise of this podcast is, there's more ways to travel that are being enabled by technology because there's a lot of ways that we need to move right now. Can you tell me about some of your favorite cars in the collection? I think the stranger the better or the stranger technology the better. I mean, I like all the cars is, is the bottom line or they probably kind of wouldn't be there. But, you know, the propeller-powered cars I really enjoy. 
people think that's crazy, and, and it's crazy today, no doubt about it, but in the 20s when they were kind of developed, mostly in France, uh, you know, the theory was no transmission, no clutch, no differential, they'd be lighter, they'd be more fuel efficient, you know? And you think about it like Kansas, where there were no stop signs and no red lights and not very many people, kind of like an airplane, you get it up to cruise speed, keep cruising along. I mean, it, it doesn't work horrible in that situation. Obviously, in Nashville, Tennessee, where there's lots of traffic and lots of red lights and lots of hills, it's a horrible, horrible thing. Now, the thing they couldn't get away from, obviously, was the loud noise, you know, and, and the wind always blowing on you. But, you know, they, they had an idea. They didn't do it just, just to do it. They thought, you know, this might be the way the wave of the future. Didn't, it didn't turn out that way, but I think that's, that's what we're seeing now with this transformation in transportation is there's probably not one single answer, right? There's a multitude of different levels and layers and propulsion types that's going to make, you know, the, the world population be able to move around. I couldn't agree more. And you brought up propulsion types. What, what other types of propulsion are in there? We, we will have some photos of the helicron on the blog for this episode, but... right. What else do you guys got? So, you know, we have electric-powered cars, mo mostly newer from the 70s and up. Most of our cars are gasoline-powered, but we also have a few pedal-powered cars, which, again, you know, people look at that and they think that's crazy. You know, they didn't really drive those on the road. But, you know, the other thing most people don't understand is, like, again, in, in Europe, in World War II, there were a lot of times during the war where people couldn't get gasoline for any kind of, you know, it wasn't available, period. So Moshe was a guy that started out building pedal-powered cars, and, you know, started, he started in the late 20s, early 30s. And, and, you know, they were small volume. They were made to go short distances, just carry people around. Again, instead of a bicycle where you're going to get soaked on a rainy day, it was kind of a car. It had four wheels. It had, you know, a top and everything. But during World War II, his business absolutely boomed because there was a lot of people that had cars that they were pretty much worthless because they couldn't get fuel. So they did pedal-powered cars. Again, that's not a great solution Currently, except although, you know, you look at Holland, right? A flat place, the distances aren't long. I mean, you go over there, there's thousands and thousands of bicycles, and they've now gotten into three-wheeled aerodynamic bicycle, which for them, it's pretty pretty good solution, really. And I feel like America, with the role that we played in the automobile industry, really tried to define what a car should be for everyone. And one of my favorite aspects of the museum is that you get to see there's different cars for different walks of life. So you mentioned you have some electric stuff from the 70s, the propeller car. I believe you have an amphibian car even, right? We have several amphibious cars. Yeah, we, we have the Ampa car. We have the Hobby car. We have a Corvair that was converted into an amphibious car, a, a 2CV. So it was another, you know, another small genre of the automotive industry where, you know, this car, instead of having a boat, you live on an island, if you want to go fishing, you know, you can buy a car that'll do both things. Uh, you know, and people are still, you know, Gibbs is still experimenting with that, doing low volume. And there's a place in England that still makes low volume, you know, amphibious cars. But again, a lot of those really unique things like the flying car, which started, you know, they started in the 40s working on that, right? And then Car came out in the 60s and actually made six or seven cars. And, and now more people are saying we're going to bring that technology back. But those fringe technologies have always been difficult because of the complexity, the cost, and, and now they developed them in those days. There really weren't very many regulations or maybe no regulations. And nowadays, uh, I mean, I don't think we want people that are not good pilots flying around downtown Nashville <laughs> or downtown Atlanta or anywhere else that's no. an urban area. 
where something could happen. Yeah, although if it got them out of the Atlanta traffic, I, I'm fine with them risking their <laughs> life to take off. Jeff had a really good point about how our vehicles are designed for the circumstances we're in. The post-war American automobiles that dominated the markets were all pretty similar in design. We forced ourselves into looking at cars in a very cookie-cutter way. Well, I think the, what, what has happened is people developed things that worked for the area and the time period that they were in. And most people don't look and say what is gonna, what, what's going to be uh, accepted in 30 years from now, right, or 10 or 20 years. I mean, one of the really interesting things is you look at really high-end luxury cars from the 20s and 30s like Bugatti and Delahaye and all those, you know, they weren't million-dollar cars back then, but they were, let's say, or 10 or 15 grand when the average car was four or $500. I mean, those cars didn't even have heaters. You know, and you think about today, if someone, if you bought a car just in a Econo box, right, a basic Nissan Altima or whatever thing, and it didn't have a heater or an air conditioner, you'd, I mean, you'd have a fit. So that shows how our level of expectation and luxuries has really just, just, just gone above, uh, you know, from 30s to now. And, and, and actually, of course, people that had cars in the teens and 20s, most of those people also were semi-mechanically inclined because the cars broke down all the time. And if you didn't know how to fix it, you didn't know how to change a tire, I mean, you probably weren't going to go 10 or 15 miles. Nowadays, I mean, how many people know how to change a tire? Um, I know even me with a modern-day car, if it dies, I'm done, right? It's something electronic or like that that yeah. I can't fix. If it's something old, I can get out and look at it, maybe, maybe fix it. So it's a very... You know, it's the, the environment's always changing. And so, um, you know, to say that you can never really, you can't say like the Model T, which was a fantastic car produced in huge volumes for a huge number of years. But to say a Model T is going to be the form of transportation for 100 years, it's it's not practical. In terms of road size and, and what you can fit in, I, I've, I've noticed in Europe that, you know, like an old Fiat 500 from the 50s and 60s is is like, I don't know, four feet wide or something like that. And some of those old European roads, they're great. And and now when you're over there, of course, Europe has become just like us. All their cars have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. But the roads, I mean, they can't make the roads any bigger because the buildings are right there. And so you have these new Porsches and they're starting to use SUVs over there. And they're, they're like eight foot lanes with seven and a half foot cars. I, I mean, there's like inches on each side. So it's, you know, you can, you can only get so, so big, but you're right. There, there's, there's different needs. Obviously, if someone's just traveling by themselves or it's just a couple, they need that certain size car. But as you get a family, you need a different type of car. Can we talk about the Dymaxion? Cause that was made sure. by a futurist, Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller. Fuller. Yep. Yeah. You just said today's word of the day, Buckminster Fuller. Richard Buckminster Fuller was an American architect, author, designer, inventor, and futurist. He created a ton of inventions and popularized the geodesic dome, as well as creating the Dymaxion car of the future, one of which lives at the Lane Motor Museum. Although he was expelled from Harvard twice, for partying and irresponsibility, he was a brilliant thinker that came a hundred years before his time. It was the death of his young daughter that pushed him into a deep depression, and only then was he able to snap himself out of it by defining his life's purpose as, quote, enhancing the technological ability to protect, nurture, support, and accommodate all growth needs of life. 
Like a lot of our guests, Bucky Fuller was a pioneer in thinking globally and explored ideas of efficiency and sustainability across various disciplines. He thought we had a tough road ahead to make it on this planet, and he put his incredible, irreverent mind to use to look at the many challenges we'd face. Go to our blog at beamimagination.com blog to see some photographs and 360 views of the Dymaxion and other cars at the Lane Motor Museum. Now, back to Jeff. Tell me about what he saw in that car. And well, Buckminster Fuller again never wanted to be an automotive producer. He he was an idea guy. He was trying to develop new technologies that would be adopted by people and in societies and and companies to build. You know, the Dymaxion. He wanted to make it much more spacious than anything else of that time, which absolutely was true. If you look in it, it's it's absolutely huge inside, right? He wanted to make it more aerodynamic, which it was more aerodynamic. I mean, every car back in the 30s, pretty much every car, is kind of what I call like the blob. They made them look nice, but there was no thought of aerodynamics because gasoline was really cheap. So they, they didn't think about that. He wanted to make it more maneuverable. He wanted to give it a higher top speed than a typical car. And he, and he wanted to improve the ride. The typical car of the 30s rode really poorly and handled, but by, by today's standard, handled very poorly. So those are the things that he wanted to kind of bring to the automotive industry and, and, and to the transportation. You know, because he even projected the Dymaxion. I mean, he really, like a, a lot of designers will look out 10 or 20 years maybe, but Fuller was really, he was looking out like 50 years because he wanted to do, he wanted to be jet powered when they hadn't, they didn't have jets yet, all right? Because the jet came out in just right after the Dymaxion. Well, the Whittle jet came out in the late 30s, but really didn't didn't get perfected right till the 60s. And then it was going to have wings. You know, it had that thing where if you, if when you got above a certain speed, that the wheelbase was going to extend and the wings were going to come out and it was going to take off. I, I mean, he really had all these. You know, you want to say crazy, but it's like a lot of people that were really futurists. They were good ideas, but they were 50 years ahead of their time. It's like the electric car. You know, the 70s. A lot of people tried it, couldn't really make it work. Um, and it's now just becoming going to be mainstream at some point in the future. I mean, there's a debate about, you know, the years that it's going to be there. But I don't think anybody denies that that's the future. I, I completely agree that maybe he was just a little bit ahead of his time. Like a lot of these ideas, you mentioned flying cars. And one thing we talk about a lot is the the five A's that are reshaping our planet, essentially. That's autonomous assistance, alternative energy, artificial intelligence, adaptive systems, and augmented reality. Those first four, and even to some extent that last one, augmented reality, we've seen car companies like Byton, which is made by someone who's spun off from Tesla, all of those are factored into that car. And none of it would have been possible until, you know, a year, two years from now, it was something that someone like Fuller envisioned and hoped for back then. So it's pretty incredible to see that. It's almost like looking through Da Vinci's sketches. Do you get that feeling ever walking? Absolutely, because, you know, the, the you know, like fuel economy, people in the 30s and 40s and 50s even started to think about that. They started to think we're not going to have oil forever, right? Or, or at some point, oil is going to become scarcer and scarcer. But they thought about it way too soon. It wasn't commercially viable. You know, the start-stop technology, that, that was a, a, a smart thing that you could have thought about years ago. The, the regenerative braking, you know, you're going downhill, you're coasting, why not, why not use that energy? <laughs> but to actually make it work, 
you needed the electronics and and you know the sophisticated things that we have now that people tried it mechanically back then and but it never worked very well it was very cumbersome it you know it was very expensive it was very heavy it just it just wasn't realistic but right you see now that there's all these things that that fuller dreamed of that really the technology is is there or it's or it's very close and it it's now possible so the, the thing is you know you got to have the dream but then at some point you got to have the technology to make it work yeah between all the regulations that have come about and the technology that's come about and standardization do you feel like the collection that you guys have is just sort of captures in a bottle perfectly what it was like to try to design cars when there were standards I think it shows a lot of that that in the, in in the previous days that there there were a lot there were very few rules and very few standards so there was more freedom so there's you know uh, uh, you talk about people's cars the Fiat 500 and and the the 2CV so the Fiat 500 was rear engine rear drive the 2CV was front engine front drive they look totally different i mean they don't look anything like each other you know and i don't want to pick on modern day cars but they really they look very similar because they're packaged to a uh, rule standard. I was just talking to uh, a designer for Nissan who's getting ready to retire, and he said, you know, there's only so much you can do because all the rules, the bumper's got to be a certain height, you got crash tests, you got to have beam protection, you got to have this. And the other thing that happens is after, you know, cars have been around now, if you, if you want to say, I don't give you a definitive start, but if you start at 1900, we're 120 years later, basically, and you can only have so many different shapes, right? You get into that where people say, I mean, at this point now, everything kind of looks like something that was kind of done before. I don't think I've seen a car that looks like, say, that has no inspiration from anything else that's made in the last 120 years. But cars do look more similar. You have to kind of look at the badging. They're not distinctively, I mean, they're somewhat different, but but not distinctively like they were. Like, if again, if you look at a Fiat 500 and a 2CV, they look nothing alike. Yeah. I think in my lifetime, the most unique automobile I've actually seen get rolled out is like the Plymouth Prowler. Uh, <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. Do you guys have one of those in your collection? We do not have a Prowler, but yeah, that's that's definitely one of those niche yeah. fun. And, and again, it was kind of retro because it yeah. wanted to be like the hot rods, you know, that were done in the 30s, 40s, and, and they were trying to capture the, something from before, which is what they wanted to do. At the same time, while the look of cars did not vary as much as they used to in the past, the function of our cars are ever-changing. Why? Because our needs for transportation are always evolving. What was convenient in the past is different now. And as our needs for vehicles change, the companies within industries change and adapt as well. So one of the big things we try to do is look ahead, and Waymo is making robotic taxis. And here's a company that came from Japanese roots with Datsun and uh, Mr. K, as he was called, brought them to America. Now they're looking at robotic cars. How do you see that future looking as someone that has sort of uh, stewarded us through the past of what you called as oddball cars? You know, I think it's a great evolution. I, I think autonomous driving and, and that type of thing. A lot of car enthusiasts are kind of negative on it. I mean, there's a lot of positive to it. And I think, you know, we all agree there are people on the roads that should be in an autonomous car, right? Uh, they don't deserve a driver's license. But 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 also there's those times, you know, my sister has trouble seeing at night. She doesn't like to drive at night. People get older, their vision is, is not as good at night or in places they're not familiar with. Traffic is heavier than it ever has been. My dad used to come see me here in Nashville when he, he goes from Florida to Michigan, 
you know, winter, summer thing. And snowbird. The, yeah, snowbird. And the traffic, he's gotten older and the traffic's gotten worse. He doesn't come here anymore because he just doesn't like it. So there's, there's a lot of positives. There's going to be more safety. I think there's still a lot of things to work out, which I think we will work out with time. I don't think it's going to be as quick and as fast as people think. But I think it's definitely going to happen. And I think it's a good thing. And I think that it's a bit of a testament, some of the designs that are at the Lane Motor Museum, of why it's not going to happen. I think tech enthusiasts like myself are often pretty excited about this stuff, and we're constantly saying, oh, it's just right around the corner, where in reality we can see that for hundreds of years people have tried to push the envelope, and this formula right now is working to some extent. You were hitting on a note about sort of differently abled people. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any uh, vehicles that sort of were designed specifically for a certain type of person, not just a certain circumstance or type of right. place? We have a couple cars that are are wheel, you know, people that are handicapped that that are that can be driven by hand with hand controls. Really, so, like the Larmars actually has pedals and it's also could be hand control. The Messerschmitt was initially designed as a hand control car by Fritz Fend uh, and then taken over by Messerschmitt. So our Messerschmitt has pedals. We have another one from Holland called the Canta that was made in two versions. It's made in the what they call the mobile person version, but also this, the same car, could the back of it flips back and then you would wheel your chair into it and you bolt yourself down and it would be hand controls and you'd, you could drive it around. It was like a small micro car. Was made in, it's still made in Holland, actually. So we have a few, you know, Type, types of vehicles like that, yeah. They should make hand-powered cars required for teenagers so that they don't text. So that'd be good. Although, That's a good thought. Yeah, they yeah. might start texting with their feet, and it would be even worse. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the worst uh, yeah. outcome there is. You had mentioned a couple flying cars. Do you guys have any of those in your collection? We do not have a flying car. We'd love, we'd love to have one, but, boy, they're very rare, and they're, they're very hard to get a hold of, yes. Why, why do you think those didn't, no pun intended, take off? Take off. <laughs> I think back in the day, you really had to have wings and have space to take off. So that that was a big detriment, right? Because so the thing is, you're stuck in the traffic jam. You're going to fold out the wings and take off, but you can't do that because you're stuck. I can imagine stuck on I-75 in Atlanta. Where are you yeah. going to get the room to have, you know, what whatever quarter mile, half mile, whatever you need to take off? But now, of course, you know, with, with technology and the, you know, vertical takeoff and the like the drones, which have become very capable. Yeah. I mean, that technology may, may be more possible, but again, you have to say, you know, how do you control that? If somebody just pushes a button and the thing takes off above them and the guy behind them did that and they're already on top. But of course you could do sensors, but it, but it would, it's going to take a lot of technology to make that work. I just think it was always too technology expensive. And then, you know, the thing is driving a car is pretty easy. Flying an airplane is pretty easy, but you have to land and yeah. and it, and that's not always an easy thing. And and they're, and they're more weather dependent, you know, thunderstorms and wind and stuff like that. And, you know, you can stop a car and just wait till it stops raining like crazy when you can't see anything. If you're up in the air, you can't just, well, with an airplane. Now, mm-hmm. when you get into four rotor helicopter type things, then you could probably stabilize yourself and just sit where you are. You definitely can. I think uh, some of Uber's early personal drone prototypes are actually the quad personal UAVs, as they call them. And I think that's uh, interesting because thinking back through some of the cars we've seen at your collection, I almost feel like we're ready for a lot of them to come back right now. There's a company called Gotcha where you can rent scooters, trikes, electric bikes, electric golf carts. And for sort of micro mobility, 
a lot of the cars that are in your collection that are smaller cars or three-wheeled, they really have a, a place and a time that if you're going a certain distance or you, you live somewhere where there's a lot of water, it could make sense to have that. And giving up on the idea of car ownership has at least given me the luxury of saying, well, what does this trip require? Am I carrying stuff? Am I going two miles? Am I going 500? Listen up to today's mystery sound. I got the first houses up upper deck, but down the shop. Passenger doors to the lower deck. Case mercy, I got up the door, turned out above the door, pushed her open. How does not mercy? Please don't do that. Mess up the door. You might have guessed the mystery sound, but if you didn't, that was the announcement of a Megabus driver. Next Mile producer Nick and I rarely leave the studio at Constellations for these podcasts. But for this episode, we ran up to Nashville. And by ran, I mean we explored as many forms of transportation as we could on this very, very short trip. The morning started out with a walk to hop on a Lyft e-scooter, which died halfway but got me to a jump bike to get to the studio for a Lyft ride to a Megabus pickup depot in downtown Atlanta to Nashville, where we once again repeated the use of e-scooters and ride-hailing services to make our way around the city. After walking around the museum, we got to sit in a microcar and squeezed our way out of it to get into a 1932 Helicron, a propeller-driven automobile that was loud. As the BEAM team explores creative ideas connected to the future of transportation, it's important for all of us to participate in what this future will look like. For more information about us and this podcast, head over to our website, beamimagination.com blog. Now back to Jeff and the podcast. Today, for instance, we rode up here on a Megabus just because it made a lot of sense for getting up in the time of day that we had to and being able to do work rather than going to an airport or coming. So I see the future fragmenting a lot and opening up room for some of the cars that are in your collection to be re-envisioned and reimagined by pioneers. With the transition to autonomous and electric cars continuing to be one of the main talking points around the future of transportation, we have to think about how we will adapt. What's cool about Jeff is even though he's an avid enthusiast, he's put some serious thought into what the future of our transportation system should look like. Are you concerned about the fun going away? I mean, I'm not because I think there's always still going to be older cars around to to use. And and my belief is that there's a 20 to 30 year transition from from gas, current cars to electric. Because, you know, you've got, I mean, at 80 million cars a year worldwide production, and and most of them are gas, that those aren't gonna just go away. I mean, people that just bought a new Nissan Altima this year, which is gonna last them 15 years or so, right? I mean, they're not gonna throw that away, typically, five years from now. now. Now, it may be, when I say, I talk about the US mostly because it's a free market. Now in China, they might say, five years from now, no more gas cars. I mean, it's communist. They can do that. Yeah. Uh, free market economies. I think there's going to be a longer transition. And the other thing is there's, 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 you know, there's all the service stations, all this infrastructure that's been built up for years to take care of, you know, essentially gasoline powered cars or diesel powered cars. You know, we need a transition time. And of course, once you go to electric, uh, you need a million more charging stations. You can't put those in overnight and, and it's going to be a whole new infrastructure system that that is going to take hopefully some time because i think to do that all at once would be very chaotic it would cause some problems yes needless to say yeah you're right about infrastructure i feel like in 
the welcoming of the future of what transportation may look like, we our country may actually be a little bit hampered because there's younger countries that haven't built out infrastructure that get to do a lot of this from scratch. For instance, high-speed rail never really took off in the U.S., but China, which has a lot of land and, like you said, the ability to do whatever they want from a governmental standpoint, has built out this massive high-speed rail system, and we have to design the cars of the future for some of the infrastructure we have right now and also plan for that transition time. So it's pretty interesting where we're headed, I think. Yeah, that's going to make a big difference, too, is because the, the, the United States is very mature in their transportation system. You know, the number of people here is I don't going to I don't think going to grow, you know, substantially. There's places like you say, China really is just in the last five years come on as a, a, a big automotive society. But they have the high speed rail. And then there's India, which really is as big as China, but really I think car production in India is like 2 million or something. It's very, very low. So they're really, in a sense, they're at ground zero. And with a new technology, they could say, hey, we're going to adapt to the new technology and build all new technology stuff and not have to, they don't have the old infrastructure to really deal with. Yeah. I I read the other day that uh, China and India are two of the biggest consumers of e-bikes, that China has 80 million electric assist bicycles. Wow. That's just staggering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they have a staggering number of, you know, more people than we do. So I don't think Americans really understand, you know, cities with 10 million and 20 million. You know, we think L.A. and Atlanta are big. And, and they are big, but I think in terms of China and India, they're not, they're not gigantic. <laughs> we have some ideas about where the car industry is headed. Soon there will be new age-defining vehicles on the road. And the Lane Motor Collection is bound to grow. What does it take to get into your collection? Do you have a list of standards that a car needs to check so many things to be admitted into the Lane Motor Museum? You know, so we have like five, like I said, four or five main themes. But, you know, our overall theme is unique and different that, that people typically haven't seen. So I wouldn't say that there's this checklist that says, you know, this car can't be in here. I was just in Europe and this friend of mine in Germany said, oh, I got this car that I want you to see. And it's a... 1988 uh, Shell high mileage car where they do where they've done the the mileage they still do the the contest to to get the greatest number of miles per gallon and they you know they have a prize for the winner and everything and this car competed in 88 and got like 1200 miles per gallon it had a 12 cc diesel uh, airplane motor in it direct drive of course no brakes it's basically this styrofoam platform you lay on with three bicycle wheels and a cover. And I said, yeah, that fits perfect, because with the change in technology and the increasing mileage, you know, we have a Honda Insight and some other high-mileage cars. This is the perfect thing that kind of fits in, because it kind of shows you, you know, in terms of technology, how far do you want to go, right? Yeah. Um, And as I tell people, uh, you don't want to go that far, because there's no creature comforts whatsoever, and that's really not practical. It's like the Peel P50, although it's a cute, fun car. Do we ever want cars to get that small? Probably not, you know, because it's just not going to work. Even the smart car is pretty small. It's it's pretty small. And the other thing is, uh, you know, people used to be smaller. And and there's different societies that even where, you know, the typical, the average Japanese person is substantially smaller frame than the average American. So, again, that's where if you build everything to fit their body type and then you try to sell it over here, it's it's not going to work for us. As we look ahead to the future, it's really important to peel back 150 years of history 
and to have someone as smart as Jeff Lane to do that with. The Lane Motor Museum collection is truly a gift to people that are studying the areas that we are studying. Join us next time as we head back to the future on the Next Mile Podcast. Thank you.